Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of President Harry Truman, Harold Stassen, Senator Tom Conley, Alf Landon, Alfred E. Smith, General Matt Ridgway, Senator Margaret Chase Smith, William Green, Nat Holman, and more than 40 other men and women in the news in the 11th performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every week at this time. Chinese dead littered the landscape. I have never seen so many dead. There are too many snipers, armchair generals, and admirals who think they possess all of the knowledge in the world and who follow only the policy of irresponsibility. Louis M. has got a fixing on state to lose by six points. Am I sure it's okay? Listen, Sid, did I ever give you a wrong one? When I make a fix, it's a fix. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding in the difficult days ahead. Now, here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. The president heard himself referred to as arbitrary, avaricious, without skill. Again, he fought back. My detractors, he said, are trying to destroy the confidence which it is necessary for the people to place, until they have proof of demerit, in their public servants. The president was George Washington, speaking shortly before his retirement, in 1796. This week, the tiny nation which he founded, now 40 times its original size, took time to observe the birthday of its founding father. His 32nd successor, with as much courage and probably less skill, more critics and many more problems, placed a wreath at Mount Vernon and struggled to maintain the confidence of the people. And the city of Washington, again bursting with almost wartime activity, looked up from its caucuses and committees long enough to realize that the banks were legally closed for the day, and that the stores of the nation's capital were paying their own kind of homage to the great man who had never seen a department store. Genuine name brand deluxe typewriter, regular $97. For Washington's birthday, only $1. Seven-inch television set for $9.99. A three-inch... Every February 22nd, the city of Washington is swollen with shoppers as cars and buses shuttle in from nearby Virginia and Maryland, from points as distant as Leesburg and Richmond and even Delaware. And as early as 7 a.m., there are lines of people outside the stores waiting the traditional birthday sales. When, in commercial honor of the gentleman from Mount Vernon, typewriters of a sort are sold for a dollar... Mink coats of a sort for $99. Winter sport coats in the natural camel's hair shade. 
They were $49.95, and they're $10 today only. A small radio at 47 cents. Or an electric refrigerator for $19. A natural wild mink coat. That was $4,275 on sale for $2,348 today only. A hundred and sixty years ago, President Washington, when inspecting troops and garrisons, climbed upon his horse or rode by stagecoach. This week, the President of the United States went out to see the new weapons at the Aberdeen Proving Ground, and his transportation was a seven-car train loaded with 40 reporters and about a dozen bodyguards. Aberdeen, in nearby Maryland, is the testing ground for Army equipment. The President and his staff went there to inspect equipment and name a new light tank. On board the train, an Army briefing officer tells the President and the reporters about the need of a name for the new tank. Now, this is not a slugging tank. It's a tank for reconnaissance, mainly. They have not given it a name uh, that I know of. It's called the T-41. I hope they'll give it a, a, a name because it means more to people if it has a name than if it has a number. How about giving us a name, a suggestion of a name on this trip? All right, let's make Truman, a Truman tank. <laughs> <laughs> Truman tank. T-41, Truman 41. At the proving grounds, they watched the new tank in action. Secretary of the Army Pace and Chief of Staff Collins christened the tank for an old comrade who died in Korea. We have decided today to name this new model T-41 tank the Walker Bulldog tank in honor of General Walton Walker who gave his life in Korea. Those medium tanks, the Pershings and the Pattons, have destroyed every T-34 that they've met. Now this little bulldog will do exactly the same thing, even though it is a much lighter tank than the Russian T-34. So we are very proud of this new light tank of ours, the Walker Bulldog. The president joined the G.I. Chow line, told the cooks and the K.P.s he'd get fat on such fine army food. And he made a little speech about unification. I noticed here that unification works completely. I was told that Army, Navy, and Air Force were cooperating in the experiments which are going on at this station. I was served coffee by the Air Force and served myself at the Army cafeteria back here in the style that I was accustomed to in 1900. And 17 and 18. It's been a very satisfactory visit to me, and I hope it's been an education to all those who came along with me. Later in the day, the chief executive watched some of the new weapons in action. Brother. And that was the 60 caliber barrel firing it, but that gun, machine gun, has two rifles, two barrels rather, and they've just taken out the 60 caliber which was fired, and they're going to throw the 20 millimeter into it, and we'll hear that in a second. Then the president, the chief of staff, and all the reporters were urged to hold their ears for the new anti-tank rockets. 
Right, hold your ears on these weapons. McLaughlin, ready. But all the fireworks and all the big noise in and around Washington was not confined to Army proving grounds or the department stores. The Senate of the United States was retesting some very old weapons, and there was no reason to find a new name for them. Here in a Senate committee room, you will hear all the ingredients of a couple of seasoned political gladiators in action. The chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee from Texas and the Republican whip from Nebraska, squaring off on the matter of talking too much. While these two traditional foes quarrel, General Curtis LeMay sits patiently on the witness stand. First, Senator Connolly. Senator, please ask questions and not make speeches. Then we're getting it out for the American. You're making you're making speeches all the time and well, I'm getting the witness to testify. There ought to be a lot more speeches made about this. Well, you can make them, but not here in this committee. Well, now, I'll tell you, Mr. Chairman, I've been very cooperative. Well, now, I've been. Continuing. Here's a man that's in the active service. That's here, uh, regardless of his job, trying to give his absolute fair testimony. I am the strategic bomb, and we ought to get the fact. I haven't interfered with the witness. I've been considerate of the senator, turned over. He's not a member of this committee, and I get out considered him as such and given him every opportunity. And all I want to do is proceed in order. Now, we're proceeding in order. We've got one of the greatest witnesses here in the United States. Well, all right, very fair on, go on and get your witness and not the senator from Nebraska do all the talking. Well, I haven't done as much talking as ought to be done, and I, when it comes to talking, I think the chairman's had his share. Well, the chairman's chairman. He that's right. He's not he can run the meeting any way he cares to. If he wants to cut me off, or that's oh, his Oh, no, business. I'm not, but I want to proceed and not just sit here and hear you talk all the time. The witness has been on the stand about 15 minutes. I think he's answered 24 questions, if I've got them all outlined correctly. So there's been no loss about any speeches from anybody. And as far as I'm concerned, if I'm going to be here by sufferance, and you've invited me to ask some questions, I'd like to ask them. If you don't want me here, I'll be perfectly, uh, I withdraw. That's all I want you yeah, to do. I don't want to be cut off by intimidation or accused of making long speeches when I've asked at least 24 questions in the last 15 minutes. And I'm asking questions that the American citizens are interested in, the fathers and mothers of the United States of America, and they've got a right to know. I'm not trying to suppress anything except bombast and... Gascanade. All right. Burlesque shows. General LeMay testified when there was an all-clear signal in the committee room. The general who runs the Strategic Bombing Command, the arm that flies the B-36s and would if ordered drop the atom bomb, called the heavy bomber America's number one weapon. General LeMay was summoned as a witness by Senator Wherry, the author of a bill to limit the president's power to send troops to Europe. The general, a cautious witness, said that a land army could not hold Europe. But under cross-examination from Senator Lodge, Republican from Massachusetts, he came out against the Wherry Resolution. General, I'm from Lincoln again here. And, uh, did you say you were opposed to sending uh, uh, more United States troops to Europe? No, sir, I did not. Uh, are you in favor of the Wherry Resolution? No, sir, I don't believe I am, as it's stated. I think I understand what uh, Senator Wherry is trying to accomplish. Uh, but uh, I don't believe you should uh, tie the hands of your military leaders uh, by requiring them to ask Congress uh, how they use their resources. I know I would be handicapped uh, uh, very much 
if I had to uh, ask Congress uh, uh, where I would place my, my, my wings and groups uh, after a war started. In the white marble office building across Constitution Avenue from the Capitol, the senators have their offices. Offices frequently filled with constituents from back home to ask for favors or tell the senator their troubles. It is a senatorial headache that never ends. But this week, one U.S. senator went looking for constituent troubles. Twice a year, Senator James Kem, the Republican from Missouri, goes back to St. Louis, rents a hotel room, and asks the voters from Missouri to drop in and tell him what's wrong in Washington. Our CBS station in St. Louis, KMOX, asked the senator if our microphone might eavesdrop on these conversations with his constituents. These are some of the problems the senator faced. First, a civil service worker in the Office of Internal Revenue who says the cost of government is too high. I'm an employee of the uh, uh, Bureau of uh, Income Tax. Yes. And um, they, I understand that you are here for one reason, to uh, find out about the civil service raise. And um, our supervisor... Well, I don't know if that's any particular reason I've come. I've just come to talk to anybody that wants that to wants see to me. That wants to talk to listening you about visit. it. Yes. Well, I thought that uh, there would probably be an awful lot of people that would come and tell you they were for it, and I thought that... Um, I would try to come and tell you that I don't think it would be necessary. As a general rule, I really think that civil service employees, me included, are making enough salary for the amount of work that they are required to do. And, um, well, that's a very uh, course, interesting a little... point of view. I think that's the first time I've ever had anybody come to me and say that. <laughs> and as to all senators, a mother with a son in Korea. I don't see why our boys have to be in Korea. Uh, if we, if they have to be in there, why not go out for an all-out policy against China and get it over with one way or the other? And uh, you, all the commentators, and I hear the senators say, I heard Senator Bridge say over television yesterday that <clears throat> we were creating a great loss to the enemy, but we too are suffering and great losses, you know, among our A tremendous losses, over 50,000. I wouldn't give one of ours for all of Manchuria and Korea put together. <laughs> yeah. And a welfare worker who wants the senator to use his influence with Dean Acheson. About, as you know, two years ago I was in Washington. I wanted very much that Mr. Acheson yes. sent me as a liaison person, and they never have any uh, opening for the yes. sort of things, just well, because I have no I'm, I'm a... Mr. Acheson. I know you haven't. I realize that. I mean, at least I, I don't think you have. I mean, no, you're quite right. Now. I have none at all. No, because... Uh, I've been trying to get him out. The, yeah, I know. Doing everything but I, I mean, can. I did talk. We're, we're distributing a lot of money. I know. And the churches are. Everybody is doing a great deal well, of money. Well, is it your, your idea we should uh, Appropriate support for the, children. the children of all... Uh, of our soldiers. Of German soldiers? American soldiers. Oh, American soldiers. That's what we did in 1924. Children that they've had in Germany or in this country? In Germany. That they've left behind. You mean illegitimate children? I or? do, yeah. Well, how do you tell the ones that have uh, had well, American fathers? Well, the deaconesses in Europe can do that. How can and they the, tell and whether they've had American fathers or not? Oh, I, how, how, the deaconess would know who oh. the men were. I mean, they know the situation over there, and they know the girls. I mean, after all... Well, I look into it. I don't know whether we have any money for that sort of thing or not. But I think Money's we, running out. Uh, I, know, I know. And just a few other problem constituents at random in the senator's two long days. You are the only thinker-straighter down there. Stamped is about 75% thinker-straighter, but the trouble is he jumps the hell every now and then. Dewey's completely out of the case because all he does, well, I guess he's a pork barrel eater. After all, we are paying taxes. 
It seems to me we should at least get a living wage so that we can keep up paying our taxes. Frankly, I'm a follower of Governor Dewey myself. Can't say that I'm opposed to the troops to Europe. Uh, is there anything that people can do to help put a stop to this thing in Washington and get them to get their feet on the ground and stop all that waste? Can you exert any influence over this uh, Republican feuding being done here in Missouri? I think perhaps it'd be very wise to put through a bill having a withholding tax on paramutual tickets at the window. And nobody's doing anything for the landlord. They're just killing them. That's what they're doing. In Washington this week, and in just about any nation outside the Iron Curtain, you could read just about anything you wanted to about Premier Stalin's much-discussed Pravda interview. The communist radio stations in Russia and the other satellites repeated the story day and night. Good evening. This is Budapest, Hungary. Tonight's program, we again bring you the full text of an interview given by J.B. Stalin to a correspondent of the newspaper Pravda. Mr. Stalin answered. If Britain and the United States of America finally reject the peace proposals of the People's Government of China, the war in Korea can end only in the defeat of the intervention. American newspapers' reactions to the story were as varied as their typography. Every commentator and columnist seemed to arrive at a different conclusion. We asked four U.S. senators what they thought Stalin's speech meant to the American people. Here's what they said. First, Senator Owen Brewster of Maine, Republican. Every dictator stirs up foreign trouble in order to quiet domestic discontent. This is the disquieting aspect of Stalin's statement as it indicates trouble both at home and abroad. And uh, America, more than ever, should be on guard. Senator Walter George, a ranking member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, one of the few who sensed serious implications in what Stalin said. In one respect, I think, Marshal Stalin's address has not been properly appraised. And that is his suggestion that war we would be finally defeated in Korea if we did not accept China's terms. This, I think, must be taken as a definite warning that Russia would insist upon Red China prosecuting the war in Korea if we should go above the 38th parallel or certainly above the capital of North Korea. Senator Carl Munt, North Dakota, Republican. When Generalissimo Joe Stalin, the dictator of Russia, says that world war is not inevitable, I completely agree with him. Of course, whether or not we have world war is going to depend in large part upon the attitude of the aggressive communist armies under Stalin. However, when Joe Stalin says that they have already demobilized the Russian army, it seems to me that the evidence directly conflicts with what he states because we are told they have 300 divisions. Senator Mike Monroney, Oklahoma, Democrat. Stalin's interview indicates to me that the strengthened resistance to world domination by communism is giving the Politburo deep concern. Instead of using their usual mouthpieces to distort the peace efforts of the United States and the Western democracies, they now have to use their number one man. The great debate on sending troops to Europe seemed to be all but ended. 
Eisenhower was already in Europe and hard at work setting up West Europe's defense army. Dewey would testify before the Foreign Affairs Committee on Saturday. For the first time since the Chinese struck in Korea in November, there had not been a major political address by either party. But the politics continued in Washington. Representative John McCormick, the Democrats' leader in the House, said this. There are too many snipers, armchair generals and admirals who think they possess all of the knowledge in the world and who follow only the policy of irresponsibility. It is my frank opinion that uh, an awful lot of the criticism of Senator Taft towards uh, General Eisenhower is because of uh, the jealousy on the part of Senator Taft, who was very fearful that General Eisenhower might be the Republican nominee for president in 1952. I think that's a wrong course to pursue. Republicans were cautious to point out that their criticism was not aimed against General Eisenhower, but against the tough mission entrusted to him. But some Republicans came out clearly in favor of both Eisenhower and the business of sending troops to Europe. Harold Stassen in Washington this morning. It is just as important for the future of America and for the cause of freedom that General Eisenhower take an American army across the Atlantic now as it was for General Washington to take his colonial army across the Delaware in 1776. Risks are involved now as then, but the best of military advice recommends it now as then. And Senator Margaret Chase Smith, who was removed from her important post on the Expenditures Committee, because she had raised her voice against Senator McCarthy, made it clear that she thought the vacuum in our foreign policy was clearly the fault of the Democrats. Today, there's an almost complete vacuum of leadership in the United States. That vacuum of leadership has existed tragically too long. In its place, we have a floundering, hand-to-mouth, day-to-day, off-the-cuff, hit-and-miss, mostly missing, operation that constantly alternates between dire warnings and optimistic reassurances to the American public. A Democratic president cannot expect leaders of the Republican opposition to continue cooperating on a truly bipartisan foreign policy when those Republican leaders are not taken into consultation on the formulation of foreign policy. This week, the state legislatures of Tennessee, Texas, and North Carolina ratified a constitutional amendment which would prevent any president, except Mr. Truman, from serving more than two terms in the White House. Thirty-four states have now approved the amendment. It needs approval by two more legislatures, a total of 36, to become part of our Constitution. Among the states that already have approved the amendment is Arkansas. So in Little Rock this week, there was time to consider a pressing domestic matter. What to do about dog thieves? Listen to the motion from the floor to put the bill to a vote. Mr. Chairman and gentlemen of the Senate, I move that the bill now known as the Hound Dog Bill be placed on the second reading for the purpose of further discussion and a roll call on the same. Every bill has a legislative history. The history of Arkansas's Senate Bill 344, known as the Hound Dog Bill, is simple. An 80-year-old doctor, Senator Abington of Beattie, found out one day that someone stole his hunting dog. Senator Abington knows dogs, loves dogs, and hates dog thieves. So he proposed that dog stealing no longer be considered a misdemeanor, punishable only by a fine. 
His bill makes it a felony, punishable by a jail term. When the Arkansas Senate was ready to vote, we had a microphone in the Senate chamber. It recorded for you what we believe to be one of the strangest roll calls in the long history of legislative government. Listen now to the final argument on behalf of the bill and an historic roll call. You heard the motion, all in favor of putting Senate Bill 344 on account of a third reading, say aye. Aye! An act to make the theft of dogs which are licensed at time of theft a felony and to require the posting or advertising of any such dog with a description of same, which has been in the possession or on the premises of any person in the state for a period of ten days or more, Senator Abington is recognized. Gentlemen of the Senate, <laughs> I think it's a simple, short bill that should become the law. Heard the explanation of the bill. The question is on the passage of the bill. The clerk will call the roll. Abington? Aye. Billy? <laughs> Baker? Bean? Bean? Blackwell? Bird? The vote was unanimous. It needs no analysis. But if humorless Moscow is listening, the moral is clear. There are a lot of things you can do in America that you can't do anyplace else in the world. And if the Kremlin really wants to make something out of it, the conclusion is obvious. Just don't steal a hound dog in Arkansas. At 12.23 on Wednesday, man raced the sun and lost. The sound you hear is a twin-jet British Canberra bomber as it left the coast of Ireland at more than 500 miles an hour. It takes three and a half hours for the sun's rays to get from Ireland to Canada. This jet bomber tried to race the sun by making the flight from Belfast to Gander, Newfoundland, 2,100 miles in that time. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. The British Canberra jet bomber landed at Gander, Newfoundland at 17.25 Greenwich Mean Time today after making the first non-stop jet crossing of the Atlantic without refueling. The Canberra failed by an hour and ten minutes, but in so doing set a new world's record of crossing the Atlantic in four hours and forty minutes. The sun could not hold its record much longer. In Korea, where the jets don't fly quite so fast as this one, they were flying two missions a day, most of them right down on the deck, and the foot soldiers they were supporting were fighting a winning battle. The tide on the Korean peninsula seemed to have turned as the Allies gained as much as 12 miles on a 60-mile front. General MacArthur said the drive opened on Tuesday and was an important new phase in the Korean War. General Matt Ridgway, whose arrival in Korea last December signaled the end of the Red Offensive, gave this interview to newsmen in Central Korea just a few days ago. Perhaps the highlight in checking the recent powerful enemy attack on the Central Front of the 8th Army was the magnificent defense of the 23rd U.S. Regimental Combat Team commanded by Colonel Paul Freeman with the battalion of French under its gallant and brilliant leader, General Montclair, attached. Those troops 
are under continuous and continually increasing hostile attack for a period of approximately 40 hours. They were completely encircled. When the relieving elements of the 5th U.S. Cavalry, commanded by Colonel Combez, broke through into the perimeter on the afternoon of the 15th, the Chinese dead around that perimeter littered the landscape. I have never seen so many dead in so constricted a space before. In the Korean War, the Chinese communists, in retreat as in their offensives, have been taunting our GIs and occasionally confusing them by learning phonetically certain U.S. expressions and using them as psychological warfare against our troops. The untutored sound of a Chinese or North Korean trying to say, why not go home, G.I., and democracy can't win, is an almost familiar sound in Korea. But this week, the resourceful G.I. was learning a few tricks from his enemy, and the strange sound of a Texas accent or an Alabama drawl taking a crack at Chinese was a new sound. A sergeant from Texas yelling, surrender. Tushang, Tushang. And Alabama Chinese for run for your life. Nuyosho, Nuyosho. And the GI version of the Chinese don't shoot. Sonny, Sonny. In Korea, the snows, which played such a part in the December retreat, are beginning to melt, and the barren, muddy earth is again becoming the battlefield. One company of U.S. soldiers reported that even the jeeps couldn't negotiate the hills and mountains. That what they need in Korea is more mules. That the army had made a great mistake in deactivating its corps of mules. And down Missouri Way, America's mule power pool, a seasoned old mule skinner who saw what the mule did in 1918 and in Italy and Burma in World War II, raised his stubborn voice in their behalf. Mule skinner Leroy Fitzpatrick of Missouri. Well, uh, a fellow that's kind of born reared in this mule business, it's in his blood. That's the way it is. The mule knows the man better than the man knows the mule. Well, I can't help uh, but get a kick out of the fact that with all the, the modern war machines we have, atom bombs and jet planes and huge bombers, mobile artillery and all of that stuff, they're still calling on the good old mule to help win the war. There never was an animal that could take it like the mule or that could get there with the stuff when we needed it. You can have all the trucks, tanks, and other mechanized units you want. Remember this, if the worst came to worst, you could still eat the mule. Can't do that with any hunk of engine. And a voice seldom raised since 1936 was heard in the land. Governor Alf Landon of Kansas, the presidential candidate who won only Maine and Vermont in his race against Roosevelt in 1936, spoke out in favor of the way the Korean War had been managed. Governor Landon said we would win because of oil. In America, we have been too much inclined to look at the Soviet strength, not her weaknesses. We have only been seeing the hole in the donut, the fetish of the atom bomb, has almost eliminated considerations of other essentials to victory in a long war. And Russia does not have sufficient crude petroleum 
to supply the insatiable demands of war. Americans this week were reminded of another presidential contest, the bitter one of 1928, when bigotry and prejudice had cost Catholic Alfred E. Smith so many votes in his campaign against Herbert Hoover. Former President Hoover, then as now, decried that bigotry and fought against it. Out of Al Smith's bitter experience, the National Conference of Christians and Jews was formed to combat the insidious disease intolerance. This week, that conference, well represented with Protestants, Catholics, and Jews, observed Brotherhood Week. The city of South Bend, Indiana, Harold Russell and Madeline Carroll received awards for their work in this field. We choose to pay tribute to the work being done for National Brotherhood by quoting in their own voices three American giants, now gone, who fought for Brotherhood all their lives. We take 30 seconds now for Al Smith, Charles Evans Hughes, and Wendell Wilkie. As far as I'm concerned, America must remain a place where you and I and our children shall enjoy freedom. Bigotry, racial animosities, and intolerance are the deadly enemies of true democracy. The people who lost their freedom in other parts of the world made the mistake of listening to those who said that they could attack religious freedom and still have the other freedom. It cannot be done. are listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly document for air based on the week's news. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Program 11 on Hear It Now, a full-hour review of the week's news told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who make the news. Once again, here is the editor of Hear It Now, Edward R. Morrow. Later in tonight's program, we shall attempt a report of the shocking intercollegiate basketball scandal which has dominated the sports news this week. Right now we wish to turn an ear to a group of intercollegiate competitors who never considered throwing an event. You're about to hear brief excerpts from the crack Harvard Debating Society, one of the oldest in the country, as it faced the two-man team of the Massachusetts State Prison at Norfolk, just outside of Boston. All the prison debates are held at home, and the moderator of this debate was Russ, last name and number omitted, convicted murderer. Here he is. The resolution for tonight is that the American people should support the welfare state. Norfolk will uphold the affirmative. Harvard will support the negative. The first speaker of the evening will be Joe, representing Norfolk and the affirmative. Joe, speaking for the prisoners, was once a skilled forger. He is now a skilled orator. We maintain that the welfare state merits your vote of confidence because it is progressive, 
It is necessary, it is equitable, it is beneficial. That our American welfare state is progressive seems to be denied by no one, even its most vigorous opponents. Some of them seem to feel that it is too progressive, but in this regard, it is simply anticipatory by nature. First speaker for Harvard will be Mr. Richard Stewart. America has not always been a welfare state. Once upon a time, it was the country where all men were equal. The proponents of the welfare state want to make it a country where all pensions are equal. The basic principle of the welfare state is to redivide the wealth of the country. The basic principle that will solve our problems is to increase the wealth of the country and see that it is equitably divided. Now, the second speaker for Norfolk is Bill. Bill, serving a sentence for embezzling, argues for the welfare state. A sensible implementation of the broad humanitarian concept of the welfare state will furnish us with our most effective weapon against totalitarianism. The welfare state is Americanism. An Americanism of this sort, we cannot have too much. The judges retired to an anteroom of the prison to reach their verdict. When they announced their decision that the prisoners of Norfolk had defeated the students of Harvard, the captain of the prison team took their 38th straight victory in a spirit of good sportsmanship, thought he knew the reason for the winning streak. Well, maybe we have a little more time to study and prepare for these debates. In Hollywood this week, Barbara Stanwyck and Robert Taylor ended their 11-year-old marriage. Miss Stanwyck said Mr. Taylor wanted to return to the freedom of bachelorhood. Evangelist Billy Graham said he was praying for gangster Mickey Cohen, who said he didn't need any help. And novelist James Hilton of Lost Horizon fame, with a new book out called Morning Journey, said this about Hollywood. This place is swarming with craftsmen who might have been artists if only they'd stayed away. And everybody's scared, scared of each other, of the future, of gossip columns, of ulcers, of the public, of Washington, of censorship. These folks are afraid for their lives. They built themselves a concentration camp that they're all fighting to stay inside. A damn democratic deluxe concentration camp where you hold elections by postcard polls of morons and smart alecks, where you bypass the adult intelligence and shoot for the blood pressure of the 12-year-old. But Mr. Hilton said this opinion about Hollywood is not necessarily his own. Just wrote it for a character in his new book. Less than two weeks ago, Senator William Fulbright, Democrat of Arkansas, accused the president of bad judgment in reappointing the same members to the board of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. The giant government project which loans millions of dollars to worthy business ventures, which may in turn help the economy of the nation. Over the years, the RFC has done much good. This week, with Fulbright directing, a Senate subcommittee began investigating recent loans of the RFC. One of the first witnesses, Ross Bohannon, a Texas attorney, accused E. Merle Young, a former RFC investigator, of asking for a big fee to help process an RFC loan to the Texmas Petroleum Company. Bohannon is on the witness stand. Mr. Young called me at the Raleigh Hotel, and I met him in the uh, dining room of the Statler for lunch. We discussed this loan application, and he told me that uh, he'd like to discuss it with us, and that if he decided that he could... Uh, process the loan favorably, that he would uh, accept employment for $10,000 cash and $7,500 a year for 10 years. Then uh, <clears throat> I called my clients in and we discussed it at, at uh, uh, some detail and uh, we decided not to employ anyone. 
The next witness was the man accused, E. Merle Young, who, after leaving the RFC, had worked for the Democratic National Committee, Mr. Young. When he called, I asked him how I would know him, and he said, if I got to the, I believe it was the colony room at the Statler, if I got there first to tell the head waiter that I was looking for him, and he was there first, he would tell him. When Mr. Bohannon came in, we sat and talked about things in Texas and about the election in general for quite a while. And uh, after that, he came around, he said, uh, I'd like to get your help. And I said, what on? He said, I work for a company, Texmas. It's a big company, has a lot of big people in it. He named several of them, the Lodges of Massachusetts, Alf Landon, and he said, I believe he said the Cabots, quite a few people he named that uh, belonged to the company. And all the best Boston families. Yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, so he said, I said, well, what is it you're wanting? He said, we want to borrow $20 million from the RFC. And I said, what for? He said, we want to pay off the insurance companies and the stockholders, the small stockholders, and the debts of this company and bring them all in together into one company. I told him at the time, I didn't think, uh, I'd never heard of RFC ever making a loan like that, a bailout loan. As far as a definite fee, there was never any amount of money ever talked about, only that he did say there would be a large amount of money. I told him I wasn't interested in the loan. Young repeated his testimony when asked to, said he didn't wish to change a word. The lawyer from Texas, Mr. Bohannon, said that he was telling the truth. Senator Toby cut through the confusion to make the one unassailable statement of the day. The testimony of these two witnesses has been for us that somebody's committing perjury. In other words, one of these two men is lying. Here, two men testify as firefighters, as Dan to Beersheba. Somebody's playing ducks and drakes in this committee. Today's meeting of the Senate subcommittee went off on a new tack when Chairman Fulbright announced that a radio reporter had asked him if he'd ever used influence to get an RFC loan for someone in his state. The senator said this information must have been an inside tip, was an attempt to embarrass him and discredit the committee. He told those attending the meeting, I now invite the directors of the RFC to bring before this subcommittee at the earliest possible time any case study which they consider throws any light upon the question of improper influence exercised upon the RFC by any member of this subcommittee. I particularly invite them to lay before this subcommittee any case in which they consider that I have overstepped the boundary between legitimate inquiry and advice and the exertion of improper influence upon the Reconstruction Finance Corporation. Another Democrat, Paul Douglas of Illinois, said he'd heard that a group friendly to the RFC was going to carry out a counteroffensive against the committee. Banging the hearing table, the senator from Illinois declared, I am not going to be intimidated in the conduct of these hearings, and I'm going to press on to the end. Before the day was over, the senators established that the White House was inspecting at least 700 letters written to the RFC by congressmen. The committee agreed that this was perfectly legal, but they feared that the information might become available to staff workers in the White House, such as Donald Dawson, a presidential aide accused of using influence to get RFC loans for others. The White House then announced that it had no evidence of illegal influence on the RFC by any member of the Senate, the House, or the White House staff. The Senate committee adjourned until Monday, after E. Merle Young stepped down from the witness stand, denying that he ever called the President Uncle Harry or ever pretended he was a Truman nephew.
In this mechanized, materialistic country in which we live, college sports have become a big business, and sometimes an unsavory business. We enjoy the fatness of a world that is lean and hungry, and because we are big, rich, and bountiful, we're inclined to think that dollars are all-powerful, that we can save ourselves, salve our conscience with a check, if only it's big enough. This week, the formula didn't work, and in the first burst of a new basketball scandal, the broken pieces were everywhere. The heroes of many teenagers had turned out to be crooks, their careers ruined, their homes broken, because they had been bought by what we still think is the all-powerful dollar. Hello, Sid. This is Chick. Yeah. Hey, Louie M has got a fixin' on stake to lose by six points. Am I sure it's okay? Listen, Sid, did I ever give you a wrong one? When I make a fix, it's a fix. If you live in that inner circle of touts, procurers, and gamblers, the voice you just heard would be a familiar one. But since this inner circle is small, though powerful, it's impossible to understand what happened to seven college students here in New York this week without first knowing how a basketball game is fixed, so that no matter what happens, the bookmaker can't lose. To the bookie, everyone is Joe. I tell you, Joe, that this is the way it usually goes. For instance, supposing you're a forward on a team, and uh, it's got to be a forward uh, and a high point scorer. The approach is usually made uh, through a friend or a relative of yours, and especially if we know that you're in financial straits. Then I step in with a big roll of dough, and I flash this big roll in front of this kid, and uh, they usually go for it. Uh, It doesn't mean that they have to lose the game. It's just to keep the point scoring within a certain amount of points. Then we can bet accordingly. The basketball scandal this week is nothing new in sports. We've had this before. We'll have it again. But in this oral brief of a fix, let's start from the beginning. The man who lit the fire that led to the arrest of seven New York college boys was the sports editor of the Journal American, Max Case. This year, there was the usual bumper crop of rumors. There was one vital difference, however. The fix reports were definite. So I went to gambling contacts. I went to basketball-wise sources. I asked discreet questions and listened. It's good to be a patient listener. What I was trying to discover was the fix guy, the character who contacted the players. Now here's where luck plays a part. One evening in a listening role, a name was dropped. It proved to be a very, very important and hot lead. I was satisfied we were on the right track. When I had it all packaged, I took it to the district attorney. He was the one to carry the ball from that time on. For one full month, 20 detectives followed up every one of Case's leads. Last Saturday night, they picked up three city college players. The co-captains, Ed Warner and Ed Roman, the star guard, Al Roth. By the following morning, confronted with wiretap evidence, they admitted all. They had been paid off by a sharp-eyed, heavy-set ex-convict named Salvatore Salazzo, paid to throw three games in Madison Square Garden. They didn't have to lose the games, but they weren't to win by more than six points. The city lost all three games. Salazzo was also arrested, along with a Long Island University player who served as contact man and a New York University player who made an unsuccessful effort to bribe one of his teammates on Salazzo's behalf. In 24 hours, the idols had fallen, and District Attorney Frank Hogan was there when it happened. I certainly wish that any young person who is tempted by easy money could have seen these stupid and dishonest athletes 
when they admitted their guilt. Tears, remorse, self-reproach, painful thoughts of the perpetual heartaches, their disgrace had brought to their parents and loved ones. All of this came too late. 72 hours later, three more college players from Long Island University admitted that they had thrown games too, had fallen prey to the easy buck Salazzo waved. Listen to the story of one of these boys. His name is Leroy Smith. Well, when I was first approached by the gamblers, uh, they put a nice problem before me, and at that time I didn't know uh, what was going on. It was a lot of money, more money than I ever had before at one time. And so uh, I thought about it for a while. I thought for some reasons, uh, if I had the money, what I could do with it, how I could help certain people, we put it that way. And I didn't think that the, it, at the time, I didn't think that the, anything would happen. But as uh, time went on and things got different, I found that uh, things was closing in on us. Things got more tougher and more difficult. And I found myself that I was really in the fix. I am really sorry, uh, or yet I can't say I'm sorry. It just isn't a word to say uh, how really sorry I am that this had, has uh, happened to me and affected so many of my friends and my family. The story of what happened reached the City College campus like steel attracted to a magnet. The students remembered last year's flush of victory. 17 wins, 5 defeats, 7 straight victories in 2 tournaments national and invitation champions. It was only a matter of rolling up the score. And now... They could have lost every game this season, and I wouldn't mind it as much as what they just did. This really hurts. Now I think a lot of employers are going to feel that perhaps they could do better by taking students from other colleges rather than city college. The fellows aren't wealthy boys. A lot of them can use the money. They probably didn't think of the results when it happened. These fellows were still heroes to me. And I couldn't believe what I heard. They couldn't believe it. Neither could Bernie Schiffer, Ed Roman's high school coach and confidant. Well, I've known Eddie Roman for many years. I had him for three years under me at Taft High School. Probably the finest boy I've ever known. I think we should question ourselves. What's the morality of this city when the boy like that, a Phi Beta Kappa, a fine boy, an honest student in high school and in college, something goes wrong? Now, whose fault is it? Up in the Bronx, Sarah Riser owns a little candy store not far from where the Romans live. She shared the shock of the neighborhood. My name is Sarah Riser. I own here a candy store for 11 years. And I know Eddie Roman since the, the day I moved into the store. I used to come in every day in here, many times a day. I used to buy ice cream, soda. He's the nicest boy that I know from the neighborhood. And Bernie Schwartz. He grew up with Eddie. He couldn't believe it either. I know Eddie Roman since he was a small boy. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I think he's innocent. I believe most, most everybody who knows him believes that. And it's hard to believe otherwise. Because when you know a fellow so long, played ball with him, spent a good part of your life with him, you just have to believe that way. The fix had been well finessed. So well, in fact, that even the Boston College coach, Al McClellan, whose team won the last of the three fixed City College games, he'd been taken in, along with the rest. We beat them by four or five points, and I understand that they were trying to 
beat us by a few points of which we won the ball game. If those City College players were trying to do business in their game with us, I certainly think it was the greatest act I've ever seen. What about Nat Holman, Mr. Basketball, the City College coach? Couldn't he tell that part of his team was laying down? I believe that we as coaches must be strong for the youngsters. We must feel that they're all honest. In this particular case, the boys have been playing for me now since the 8th of December and given me a fairly decent performance. And every time I got him in the dressing room, I spoke about these mistakes. Never accused the boys. That'd be wrong. If the boy is dishonest, that is very difficult to detect. Well, then, what's the answer? Asa Bushnell, head of the Eastern Collegiate Athletic Conference, feels that the first responsibility still rests close to home. This is a time for corrective measures, a time for definite action. It seems to me that the coaches must redouble their efforts to protect the boys on their squads. Is that the answer? Dr. Harry Wright, president of City College, took a different approach. This year, as in the past, the members of the team were continually instructed as to the possible dangers of this kind. This morning, the three boys involved, Ed Roman, Al Roth, and Ed Warner, were suspended from college until further notice. Long Island University has given part of its answer to the question. It's discontinued all intercollegiate sports, including its remaining basketball games in Madison Square Garden. But while those concerns searched for the magic formula, City College, humiliated but not humbled, returned to the garden court last night, determined not to let the student body down. Nat Holman talks to his team. We've been hit below the belt, you and I. Let's pick up from here. We're going to work so hard from now on that we'll show the outside world that our intentions are good, it's a great game, and we can bring this game to the high standards and the high level that is held previously only through our efforts. An honest-to-goodness, clean, healthy attack is what we'll give them from now on. And starting for City, at left forward, number 45, Herb Cohen. Right forward, number 32, Herb Holmstrom. Conspicuously missing were the names of Roman, Roth, and Warner. Left guard, number 15, Ronnie Nadell. And at right guard, number 22, Arnie Smith. The garden was less than half filled, but there were more City College students there last night than ever before. City got off to a slow start against Lafayette, then picked up 12 straight points. At halftime, City led 37 to 25. The kids had something to cheer about. No one knew why the attendance was low, but it was obvious that with the heat on, the bookies were laying low. If this thing keeps up, not only basketball will be ruined, but every sport will be questioned. Nobody will ever want to bet anymore. And as a result, I'll be looking for a job. After all, I've been 20 years in this racket, and it took me a long time to develop my clientele. You know, these things don't come up overnight. It takes a long time uh, in this racket. And as a result, along comes something like this. I got a lot of money invested, and the next thing you know, I'm out of business. I'm out on the street. In the second half, City continued to roll. It picked up 30 points more, found a new hero in Floyd Lane, won 67 to 48, without Warner, Roman, and Roth. 
Maine, we have the greatest team in the country. City College, which had disappointingly won only 11 games this year, picked up its 12th win. The crowd files out. The garden doors are closed. The nervously torn programs, the crushed paper cups are swept up. And all that you hear now in the cavernous garden is the staccato sound of workmen pushing the seats back in place. Sure, the game goes on, and we are quick to forget. The fix and the fast buck combine to ruin the careers of seven boys. This occurred in a climate where consciences have become callous, where the dollar is the big symbol. But it isn't only the boy in the sweatshirt who's to blame for this sort of thing. What about the distinguished educators who turn a nice phrase about character building while their agents, with their knowledge, are out buying athletes almost in the open marketplace? What about the fix that gets the unqualified boy into college and keeps him there regardless of his academic record? What about the scholarships, the special allowances? In such a climate as this, there is reason to expect that the moral fiber of the youth of the country has been weakened, that they have become cynical, reckless, and eager for that fast buck, that a sort of decadence has overtaken us in our youth. But this is not so in New York or elsewhere. It is our observation that today's college students are steadier, better informed than earlier college generations. They think harder, are less inclined to accept slogans for solutions, and they won't stampede easily. I have had opportunity to observe the youth of several nations as they prepared to meet their testing time. And these will meet their test, all right, if they get the leadership they deserve. You have just heard Program 11 in the new CBS series, Hear It Now, a document for ear based on the week's news. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly and a CBS staff which includes Joseph Wershber, John Aaron, Edmund Scott, Jesse Zausmer, and Irving Gitlin. Portions of the program originated at WTOP, Washington, KRLD, Dallas, WEEI, Boston, WIBW, Topeka, Kansas, KMOX, St. Louis, WBAB Atlantic City, New Jersey, KLRA Little Rock, Arkansas, KTUC Tucson, KNX Los Angeles, KCBS San Francisco, and the British Broadcasting Corporation. Combat recordings were made in Korea by CBS correspondent Robert P. Martin. Some of the special recordings on the basketball story were made by Bill Leonard. Edward R. Morrow can be heard over most of these CBS stations Monday through Friday at 7.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is Olin Tai speaking. Besides being one of the safest investments in the world, United States defense bonds are a very profitable investment. For every $3 which you invest in bonds today, you'll receive $4 when the bonds mature 10 years hence. And in regard to their safety, well, these bonds are backed by the richest, strongest nation in the world today, your nation. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.